So let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to reflect on matters that are addressed in the confession. We pray, Lord, that you'll give us an ability to discern your truth. Help us, Lord, to have a good and uh, thoughtful discussion. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> All right, like I said, we're in uh, chapter 20. We're looking at Article 2. Article 2. God alone is Lord of the conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men, which are in anything contrary to his word or beside it in matters of faith or worship, so that to believe such doctrines or to obey such commands out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience and the requiring of an implicit faith and an absolute and blind obedience is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also. Okay. So this is a you know, really significant uh, teaching for a wide range of reasons. I think the thing that comes to mind most often is the medieval church when we think about this particular matter, this uh, chapter. But we can think about the civil magistrate. Uh, we can think about totalitarian governments. You know, there are a lot of things that um, we could think about where this applies. So here's a, here's a thought or a question. When we were in the midst of the uh, COVID stuff, did anyone, if you're coming from a reformed background, was there anybody who brought this up that you interacted with, this particular chapter, this particular article? You know, because it seems that uh, the mandate to close churches is directly related to it, don't you think? But did anybody in your circle say, hey, what about, uh, you know, the confession, chapter 20, <laughs> article 2, and it had ever come up? I'm, I'm not seeing many hands. <laughs> I know it came up here. You know, it was something that was a, a, a matter of discussion and action. And one of the reasons why our, our church uh, did not comply had to do with this. So anyway, so let's, let's think a little bit, little bit about this. Um, when we say God alone is the Lord of the conscience, um, what does that have to do with you know, just kind of the conduct of our daily lives. Any, any thoughts? Is it merely, uh, you can't tell me what to do kind of thing, or is there more to it than that? Yeah, Chris. Chris. It means that God is Lord of the conscience. Right. So it's not as though it's just uh, a way for us to defy, you know, commands we don't like or something like that, but it's, a, it's an actual statement that says this is the case, this is, you know, really, the case, really so, it's in, you know, civil authorities or even ecclesial authorities are not the Lord of the conscience. Other thoughts? Yeah, David. Truly, God in his word is Lord of our conscience, and when society at least held some place of religion in high esteem, 
you could really object to fighting in World War II, and people understood. Now they expected some consistency. Uh, but these days, yeah, yeah. a real conscientious objector for right. religious reasons. That, that such people even got pushback from the COVID mandates. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, yeah, that's. Uh, and it's kind of odd uh, that some of the people who were the most, I guess, into compliance were the people that we call liberals in our society, even to this day. I, re- I read an interesting uh, article, essay here. I can't recall the publication it was in, but it was, it was, essentially, uh, so, it was uh, essentially someone on the left uh, sort of wondering about aloud or thinking aloud, what what is it about you know socialists today that they are so anti-human? <laughs> and he was getting into uh, things related to a range of th- matters, but he said you know there are still people walking around with masks on, and you know you're wondering what, what is it that's going on here? I don't have any great insight, by the way. It's just an interesting thing to reflect on. Uh, why are the people who historically? So, like when I was a kid, you know, I'm 60 years old. I grew up in I grew up in a hippie environment, and all the hippies were into a few things: nature, right? They wanted to get back to nature, and often that meant like, you know, going up to Vermont and, yeah, uh, you know, starting a farm, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. And um, they were into um, homeschooling. So some of the early homeschoolers were on the left. Uh, this is something that, no, you know, it's kind of been forgotten, but a lot of those early homeschoolers were hippies, and they just wouldn't go, you know, wouldn't send their kids to the public schools. Um, today, it's almost like the reverse. You know what I mean? You know, the people who are the most kind of, I guess, the strongest advocates for getting back to the land and... <laughs> You know, now, now the left likes their organic food, so they, but they need somebody else to grow it. They like electrical, electric cars, so they need someone else to build them. They need Maddox Industrial Transformer to make sure that the electricity gets to the, <laughs> to the house so they can charge their, their green car. But you, you, you kinda, you kinda, it's kind of fun to think about, about just all the inconsistencies, all the crazy things um, that we see. But they used to be... The, the kind of the, the advocates of freedom, and everything has changed. Um, anyway, now what is the conscience? Have you thought about that? You know, we kind of say it, and not, you don't really spend much time reflecting on it. So you break it down, con would be with, okay? And then science would be, uh, it's a, you know, scientia would be like, uh, you know, term for wisdom. So there's a kind of wisdom that we carry with us. A kind of. So I, I put it this way: we we come with a cheat sheet. I remember when I was a kid. I don't know if they still do this. I don't even know if they still use textbooks. Do they still grade? Is do people? <laughs> I wonder sometimes. You know, stuff I read. I'm like, you know. But anyway, I remember. You know, you'd have all the answers in the back of the book. You remember those days? You know, like if you had a math book. You know, and you had a lot. And so I. <laughs> Always looking at the back of the book. And uh, 
But life, uh, what, what we have when we talk about conscience is the cheat sheet. And we have the same cheat sheet. And that kind of gives us a clue that there's a creator, right? Uh, that you know, we can find agreement uh, among people from all over the world. This is one of the things C.S. Lewis gets into in Mere Christianity when he's talking about uh, the natural law, talking about you know, kind of the moral nature of human beings. He says, okay, there's a lot that people make of cultural um, you know, variety. You know, if you go back to Montaigne, uh, you know, early Renaissance, late kind of uh, religious wars guy from France. Uh, you know, he just, you know, there, was, there were reports coming in from all over the world about all of, all of the variation, all the cultural diversity, you know, that, that, you know, you see in the world. And he was, you know, delighting in, you know, he delighted in talking about all the things that are different in like Arabia or in Africa or China. But um, before that, people were fascinated by the similarities. You know, you'd say, isn't it interesting that so many things, uh, you know, are, are prohibited uh, around the world that everybody prohibits? You know, that's the real question. Why? Why is that the case? And so we, a lot of, a lot of the time, it kind of boils, you know, much of the time it boils down to what do you want to think about? What are you interested in? What are you trying to explore? Uh, we live in a time where people are not interested in what various cultures hold in common or share in common. We're all about trying to accentuate uh, or sort of underscore the differences. And consequently, we don't think much about something like conscience right now. But remember Jiminy Cricket? They don't play that anymore at Disneyland. <laughs> Let your conscience be your guide, remember? Jiminy Cricket was the conscience. You know, for, for, and that was one of the indications that uh, Pinocchio wasn't human yet. He needed a cricket. You know, you know, give a little whistle. You know, <laughs> yeah, go back and watch it. <laughs> Are you going to sing? <laughs> Let your conscience be your guide. <laughs> I can't remember quite how it goes. You want to sing it for us? <laughs> but, but that was the idea. You know, he needed this little, you know, bug <laughs> to tell him what was right and wrong. Uh, and then really over the course of the, of the story, you know, he becomes more and more human, right? And he actually demonstrates the, that he kind of knows when he goes to save Geppetto and all that stuff. You remember in The Whale and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, uh, now I've got your minds all spent. Well, yeah, well, when was, when was, it, was, it was like the late 30s, wasn't it? Well, when I was a kid, they actually had, uh, like, reruns and stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they would actually play it on The Wonderful World of Disney, you know. They'd have, you know, their old films and stuff like that. Anyway, um, so it's, it's something that we, we take with us in, that, you know, historically was evidence that we're made in the image of God. This is some, you know, indicator that, that our, our Lord is our creator and has given us some guidance to, 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 that we have with us, whether we like it or not. You know, so sometimes we don't like what the conscience has to say. That's when we squish the bug. <laughs> right? say, Leave me alone. That's what, we, you know, that's what Paul gets into in Romans 1, suppressing the truth 
you know what's right. You just don't like it. You suppress the truth. So because that's the case, that means that when the commandments and, and doctrines of men are in contradiction to the conscience, right, or they're seeking to subvert or overturn. Well, the word of God is the externalization of the conscience, you could say. But what you have there is the conscience is ruled by the word. But let's think about it this way. There was the word before the word. You know what I mean? In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. Word was God, right? So scripture is the, is the uh, literary and you could say common record of the way the word has worked. And we refer to that. I've got no, I'm not a Bardian or anything, you know. I believe the scripture is God's word. But we have to remember uh, that back, you know, in the days before we had a Bible, it didn't mean everybody was sort of like, hey, I got no guidance. But what informed them was the word, you know. All things came into being through him, right? They're all made for him. That was always the case. It wasn't like, you know, again, it wasn't like, you know, in the New Testament, God said, hey, I got this great idea. I'll give everything to the Son. Cool. <laughs> no, it was just like always the case. All things, you know, so if you reflect on Hebrews or, you know, Colossians, you know, you see you know, first chapter of John, it's all there. We don't think about it very much. We're very, we're very averse to that kind of uh, thinking. We, we kind of like just to stay with historical and we don't like to think about sort of the, the sort of the deep sort of implicit theology that's that's uh, present, you know, in creation. You know, creation proclaims what? Yeah, the glory of God, not the glory of Darwin. You know, that, yeah, or you know, just raw material forces grinding away. You know, proclaims the glory of God. Why? Because he, he's the creator. So this is, this is at work. Now, the word, of course, provides us with uh, a basis to hold each other accountable. But uh, the word is not a, uh, a thing that denies the conscience. It's the, what, what underlies it and, and informs it, meaning Christ, the, the Son of God, uh, informs it. Uh, now, when we think about, though, when doctrines of men or commandments of men uh, are contrary to the written word, the scriptures, um, you know, we have to do a little thinking sometimes because um, you'll have people who try to proof text or, you know, justify a particular doctrine that other people don't agree actually reflects the word. So this is where the debates come in where sometimes things can get kind of heated, right? Did you see any of that during the last few years when it came to you know, these sorts of, obviously, conversations surrounding Romans 13 would be, a, a, you know, some... The, the, the thing about that is that even, even with that, people are not thinking very hard, well, or even drawing on our own history as reformed people. One of the, one of the uh, really helpful work, uh, 
I, I, saw, I saw that hand. I'll, I'll get you in a minute, Steve. Yeah, uh, it was Vindicii Contraternos. I, I had not read it until COVID. So had anyone else read it before COVID? Uh, Vindicii Contraternos. That's uh, uh, a French, it's a Huguenot. Um, who's the guy, Junius, Junius Brutus? Yeah, Junius Brutus, I think that's what it was. Uh, that was, but that was a pen name. It's probably the most thorough treatment I had ever encountered when it came to a biblically informed understanding of politics and the right of Christians to defy the civil authorities. And if you want to read it, it's, it's, not, a, it's not a quick read, <laughs> and it's not an easy read. Uh, the arguments are very dense, but you know, thoroughly scriptural. And our founding fathers, that was one of the texts that they referred to. You can see at different places where you know, even Thomas Jefferson, the guy who cut up his Bible, is referring to Vindicii, <laughs> you know, for, to justify the, uh, the American cause. Steve. This kind of goes back to what you referred to earlier about the nature of our conscience. Because we're made in God's image, so I, I think it's innate that we have uh, a conscience. But in modern times, um, the idea primarily, especially by those who want to rule, uh, is that the conscience is a social construct. Yeah. yeah. And that's probably one of the big dividing lines. Yeah, that's definitely the case. Well, of course, that's going to serve your interest if you're you know, a criminal gang that wants to take over the church or the government, and we've seen it many, many times. Uh, it is possible for, you know, the institution of government to be legitimate and the people who run it to be criminals. Just because you are uh, an official in the church or in, uh, you know, the state civil authority doesn't mean you're not a criminal. Um, you could be part of a, a gang that's, like, pursuing your own selfish interests or or just insane, you know, when we think about totalitarian ideologies, they're just often insane. And you think about the cultural revolution in, in Mao's China, you know, the four olds and just the uh, struggle sessions. So much of what we saw during COVID resembled that. So the struggle sessions, have you ever seen those those uh, photographs of, um, you know, doc, you know, criminals, uh, I, you know, sort of uh, who have been, they're not actually criminals, they're just basically people who um, were condemned because they didn't agree with Mao, <laughs> you know, or they were just intellectuals. And there are these um, kind of kangaroo courts, just these public events where they'll put a sign around his, the guy's neck or the woman's neck which, with you know, a description of the things that they're condemned for or accused of, and then just literally hundreds of people just shouting at them and, and calling for their punishment. And often those monkey trials, what they're referred to as struggle sessions, ended in death. That's not too long ago. This was the 1960s and 50s in China. Um, there are people alive today who remember those days, who came to the United States and are saying, this is looking very familiar. <laughs> so uh, another thing, I, so I've, I've talked a little bit about Casablanca lately, but Casablanca is such a fascinating um, film. It was, 
it was made during World War II. It was, I think, uh, came out in 43, 42, 43, so in the middle of the war. And basically you, what you have is a picture there of what happens when criminal gangs take over the civil authorities. The Nazis were a criminal gang. You can say, sure, you know, Adolf Hitler was elected, but there was some intimidation <laughs> that, that had gone on and a lot of just ugly stuff. Uh, you know, so it was the night, the night of broken glass, you know, just all kinds of stuff. And they were very forthright about what they were up to and what they intended to do. Um, and, that, and then, you know, Vichy, the Vichy regime in France, with, with the collaboration, you have this sort of really conscienceless French uh, officer who is in charge in um, Casablanca, which was a colony of France. And the only person that seems to have a conscience in the film are uh, the uh, Czech freedom fighter, uh, the bartender, and the 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 butler, or the 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 Mater D, and uh, and Humphrey Bogart. <laughs> Everyone else is just like, you know, it's just crazy. But what do you what do you do? How do you how do you how do you live when criminal gangs have taken over? We've had criminal gangs take over. You know denominations right now. I really do think of them as criminal gangs. So I think the, I think criminal gangs run the United Church of Christ. I think a criminal gang is running the Episcopal Church of the United States. I think a criminal gang is running the Methodist Church. These are criminals, and they're trying to bind the conscience on matters, you know, directly. Uh, in opposite, you know, sort of opposed to God's word. So, you know, they'll say it's all about, you know, inclusion, acceptance, and celebrating diversity. But if you defy them, if you say, I can't do that because of God's word, you're out. You lose your pension if you're a pastor. You lose your church building if you're a congregation. You're out. They have zero Zero tolerance policy. <laughs> All these tolerant people with a zero tolerance policy. I've, I've seen it. I know guys uh, who uh, experienced it. So anyway, but this is the, so it's not just like, whoa, in the Middle Ages, you know, with, you know, indulgences and stuff like that, or, you know, holidays that are made up and everybody has to observe. You know, it's, it's, it's right here. It's right now. It's in our civil government. It's in our ecclesial, with our, many of our ecclesial authorities. So, welcome to the 21st century. So <laughs> um, it notes uh, in matters of faith and worship, um, the this, this second part, so that to believe such doctrines or to obey such, uh, obey such commands out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience. Now, is it possible, though, for a person to suffer from a bound conscience but still be a true believer? We have an example in Scripture of people who avoid, you know, uh, meat that's been sacrificed to idols, uh, only eat vegetables, those kinds of things. What does Paul say about those, those brothers and sisters? He doesn't say they're... You know, not, they're, not, they're no longer brothers or sisters. He's, he talks about 
you know, the weaker brother. That's the weaker brother, weaker vessels. Yeah. Well, not the weaker vessel. Weaker vessel would be, you know, referring to wives. But the weak, the weak. Uh, uh, so in terms of the, uh, the conscience, um, that person is laboring under some uh, understanding of what they need to, uh, what, things they need to do or commands they need to obey that they don't actually need to obey. So if you get, get my, my drift. So we can still affirm that that's a believer. Isn't it interesting that no, nobody owns, I'm the weaker brother? The other person is the weaker brother. <laughs> well, I'm the strong brother. No, I'm the strong brother. No, I'm the strong. <laughs> I saw a hand. Yeah, yeah, Victor. Well, I, I didn't know that you were going to just say what you just said. But because mm-hmm. I think what Dave was referring to was the weaker brother, not the weaker vessel. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah just correct. So I think that one of the things that the idea of liberty of conscience does, for a Christian, it kind of sets up kind of sets up a self-defeatist thing when I say, why can't in good conscience do thus, thus, and thus? I've heard this in the baptism argument a lot. Um, what we have to remember is in the first paragraph it says, the freedom that Christ hath purchased for us. And again, in the very last paragraph it says, the freedom that Christ hath purchased for us. Christ has purchased us a freedom from commandments and doctrines of men. And then Galatians, Paul, as as he did in um, Acts 15, Paul, Galatians chapter 2 and 3, the Judaizers were trying to bind the consciences of the new believers, that their consciences have been purchased by Christ. And Paul says, you don't do that anymore. You don't walk according to the, to the doctrines of men. So I think that as Christians, it's important for us to, and on every subject, honestly, have a good apologetic for what you believe and why you believe, because your conscience kind of is at stake here. You know, yeah. And I think, too, it doesn't mean that anything you might believe at the moment is right. You know, you, your, your conscience should be subject to the challenge of other believers and to a close examination of God's word so that it's not like a carte blanche. Well, you can't make me do that. But... The concept of let your conscience be your guide. Like, I think uh, Leonard Skinner said that. <laughs> well, seeing that Leonard Skinner said it, I've got some questions. <laughs> I'd like to get the chapter and verse in Leonard Skinner and Freedom of Conscience. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess, you know, the, the Westminster Divines, you know, in the very next article get into, you know, using this as an excuse to do anything you please, right? So this is not like, you know, James Bond and the license to do as you please, yeah. So, uh, but what we're still called to is God's written word, as the uh, means by which we are to, to judge the, the commands that are given to us by civil authorities and ecclesial authorities. So you remember when Paul goes to Berea, you know, we're told that they were a more noble character. You can always know when a church is the, is the outcome of a church split is when they call themselves the Berean church. <laughs> or the Berean Presbyterian Church, uh, or the Berean Baptist Church. There was a split somewhere. (laughs) 
Other thoughts? Yeah. Uh, I was just thinking about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Yeah. It was a very interesting argument because his, his conscience said, I must do all I can to, to get this man from the handles of power. Yeah. And whatever he could do, and there was hard arguments against that um, from good people. I mean, not a lot, but uh, it was in his, I think it was a very acute time period. I think we can learn from those. Most of the time, we're not in acute situations. Yeah, or we don't find ourselves with his connections. He was a, uh, you know, he was part of a very important family in Germany who could, he, he could get, he had access to things that generally people didn't. But, it, it, you know, you can say the same thing about, you know, what Solzhenitsyn had to say about, you know, the Russian Revolution and what occurred. He said, basically, you know, he said, why didn't, you know, as soon as they came to power the Bolsheviks, why didn't people just rise up with hammers and sticks and just, well... You know, think about it. It's, sometimes it's just hard to know what to do when you don't know how it's all going to play out. You don't know. So in the, in the early phases of, of something, um, sometimes there's just a lot of uncertainty. How, you know, are they okay? Are they you know, genuinely um, looking out for our national interests or whatever? Uh, or is there something else going on? And by the time you get a sense of, what's really going on or have some strong suspicions that it's not sound, it's too late, you know. Yeah. You're going to say something, Roy? So in Romans 14, it's like Paul, and, and, and not just in Romans 14, but in, all throughout the epistles, it's like the disposition is, you know, he's to bend over backwards to try to maintain the unity with the brother who maybe has mm-hmm. a different bearing than you do on a lot of matters. Yeah. Very emphatic about that. And, you know, how do you distinguish between a criminal gang and one of these stumbling blocks that you have a difference of opinion? And, and, and how do you, this is what we've all been going through a lot, trying to maintain unity, but also trying not to allow something to become completely taken over. So, how do you, what's some practical things if you see these in your churches or in your relationships? Yeah, I think uh, this is something that, you know, we talk a, a bit about in our own church because, you know, the PCA is pretty sound, but there are things that we can see kind of percolating here and there that look very much like what, we, you know, we, we saw percolating in the, in the 40s and the 30s and, you know, mainline Presbyterian world or elsewhere, and we're like, Nip it in the bud, <laughs> you know, and that's good. That's good. But at the same time, you know, people uh, who might disagree with us that we are concerned about, you know, might uh, accuse us of overreacting or not treating them objectively or fairly, and those kinds of things. I never said that, or I don't. I would never go there. That's always always starts though. You know, I would. You know, it's, it's, no one ever says when some kind of new thing is proposed that I'm proposing this because it's going to like be a real problem for lots of people in their health. <laughs> it's, it's always proposed as being a solution to a problem. And those of us who have questions about, you know, its misuse or whatever are just kind of, you know, oftentimes written off as benighted or, or you know, uh, unable to get with the times or, you know, right. We, because, I mean, Paul also went for the jugular with Peter mm-hmm. when he knew he was off track. So, I mean, they're, they're, yeah. the principle is there, but it's hard to distinguish what that line is. 
Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting example, too, because you never hear that one brought up. There, there are just like uh, different things you just never hear brought up, like when Paul says they handed him over to Satan to teach him a lesson. <laughs> okay, when was the last time you heard a pastor say that? <laughs> or uh, your point, you know, like I confronted him to his face in front of the entire community, you know, and basically what did he say? You're a hypocrite. You know, you're doing this and doing this, you know. You just are trying to please these guys over here. When, they're at, when they weren't here, you were hanging out with us, you know, eating shrimp. <laughs> All kinds of stuff, you know. Yeah, yeah. I was curious about when you have people kind of come into a bigger group of people and just kind of accuse everyone being a stumbling block to them and then kind of all of you should, uh, should do act differently because I, my you're causing me to stumble because yeah. you didn't come to my conclusion. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's sometimes you, you have that particular problem where the weaker brother, uh, you know, uses strong arm tactics <laughs> to to get his way. I've seen that play. Yeah. Yeah. So there, you know, a lot of wisdom has to be exercised in these matters, and you know, principled debate. Uh, a willingness to kind of live with the tension and the discomfort. You know, that's one of the things about... Uh, so here, I'll give you my, my take. One of the things I think uh, that helps when you have just men in the room is that things get, can, be, get, can get pretty heated and pretty direct. <laughs> Oftentimes when a woman is in this room, everybody's sort of like checking what they're saying or not wanting to hurt people's feelings. I, I think one of the things that can be really good is when you just, you know, we're not talking about your feelings right now. We're talking about what's right and wrong, and you're wrong. <laughs> that kind of stuff, you know. So we're not, we're not trying to make sure we're, we're going to do the kumbaya afterward and have a lot of hugs and that kind of stuff. Sometimes you just really need to have it out. Um, and I've been in situations where, you know, because there are a number of women in the room, you just don't do it. You know, you're just kind of like holding back. Or the person that you want to really challenge is a woman. You know, like. Now, I'm not saying that women can't argue or can't be tough or anything like that, but it's just an awkwardness. There's kind of an awkwardness that sometimes um, is the case when you find yourself in mixed company. Yeah, right. Um, would that be considered kind of like doctrinal triage? When you're trying to prioritize, oh yeah, that's the way to put it. You know, first first priority issue, second priority, uh, yeah. it's like a gospel message issue. You don't want to get that wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When it comes to is Jesus the Christ? Well, yeah, we're willing to go to the mat for that one. <laughs> but um, and then that was another thing. You know, particularly with the COVID stuff. Um, when does the state, or even is it? ever the case that the state has the right to close you down, that kind of thing. Um, is that a first order, second order? People had different thoughts on that. It's interesting how it's all playing out. Every church I know that didn't close is booming. There's also a disavowing now of people that were all for it as, right. if, as if they weren't. Right. I never meant that. <laughs> you know, even Fauci, I was just giving advice. <laughs> like, no, we've got the, we've got the recordings. <laughs> yeah. Well, someone, mentioned, someone mentioned that they had heard that the conscience is socially constructed, or maybe you had said something. That's, 
the easiest thing to disprove because especially people on the left look at someone like Martin Luther King yeah right if the conscience was socially constructed he wouldn't be a hero for standing up right. so and the conscience also often motivates us to stand up directly in contradiction to the social conditioning around us that's the that's the most powerful instance of the conscience so often these arguments are trial oh it's just socially constructed well then why does it lead us into these Massively socially counterproductive situations. Yeah. Or, or you could say uh, that uh, rule about me not going into your house and taking everything in your fridge. I was social construct, baby. It's just <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it when it hits you is when it breaks down. One of the things you know we're we're witnessing around the country right now is just uh, kind of the craziness in our cities uh, because of an unwillingness to enforce the law, um, just all over the place. Yep. Uh, I think, well, anecdotally, one of the most powerful things uh, I think I saw somebody do and that I was able to do was actually go into Costco without a mask and be the only one in there and just walk around. It wasn't, what's so interesting about that looking back is that there's probably, I don't know what the percentage is, but there's probably 20% who are just dying to be that person to take it off. And I think we need people, and I think God wants people to stand, even at a significant cost, so it can spread. Yeah. You need that. So at a tactical level, this is one of the things I struggle with all the time. Because on the one hand, you're absolutely right. You need people who do stuff like that. On the other hand, you know, you need to play the long game. And you have to think about, okay, you know, that as well. So you could flame out, be sent to the gulag, you know, that kind of thing. And um, there's something to be said for that. I'm not dismissing that at all. But on the other hand, there's, if you're playing the long game, then there's an argument to stick around and keep fighting and maybe work within the framework of the institution for a while to see if you can make change. That's always a tension that I feel. In uh, the book, uh, Torture for Christ, Richard Wormbrand, who was arrested, one of the things that he said in the book that was interesting was the doctors were the most hated people because they were in there to make sure that you would just get close enough to death, but then you'd be released, uh, back, take it back out of the fridge. And so they were just despised people. Well, there was a Christian doctor who had to go find Richard Wormbrand, and he had to go into the prisons to try to locate him because no one knew where he was. And so he had to play this role, which you're kind of this long game. And I thought that was so interesting. There were so many Christians in that he said were in the communist network. Yeah. So I definitely see that. Yeah, there's, it's, it's not a simple thing. And I certainly admire people who, for conscience sake, suffer. In other words, they make their stand. And I think then the question is, is you, know, I, you know, martyrdom, when you think about martyrdom, uh, one of the problems in the early church is they had a lot of people who wanted to be martyrs. I know it's a weird thought, but, you know, they were like, like running to martyrdom. And you actually had, uh, you know, bishops and, and elders and prelates and stuff like, you know, let the martyrdom come to you. <laughs> don't, don't, don't force the issue. Let the martyrdom come to you. And many of the great martyrs were people who had tried every other thing. And then finally it was like, I can't do that. 
you know, you have asked for the, the you know, the one thing that takes me to, to the point of death, you know. Um, I've tried to work with you, I've tried to work with the situation, but you've, I can't go there. So uh, I think there's something to be said for that. Um, anyways, as you can see, this is a very uh, deep matter and has a lot to, for us to, to consider in our own situation. Um, I, I like this last clause, though, to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also. Isn't it fascinating just how reason has gone out the window or all around us? Um, I've heard uh, some thinkers say that, um, these are Christian intellectuals who say that the church, paradox, there's a kind of a paradox here. So many of the critics of the faith have accused Christians of being irrational, you know, over the centuries, because we believe in things like, you know, the virgin birth and resurrection and stuff like that. We're at a point now where, like, we're the only ones left to still believe in reason, even in the academy, you know, at the highest levels, uh, because there are people who really do believe that even our reasoning uh, faculties are just socially constructed. Yeah, David. Our society used to think that we were unreasonable, but their society has passed us into the unreasonableness of insanity. And there's well, a lot of people yeah. looking at us going, maybe you were the normal ones. So well, I to look at that. I think that with time, you know, it's interesting to see how things change. I, I've made this statement many times. I think that women who have three or more children will go from being pariahs to saviors in my lifetime. And it will be when everybody, you know, it'll be when, uh, you know, 30% of the population is over the age 65. We're getting close. That's happening in Japan. I think they're already there. Um, it's happening everywhere in the world. So it's going to be a situation where just I can go over night people and say, what do we do? Yeah, like during the early phases of the pandemic, it was sort of like everybody who had been into canning and everybody who was into homeschooling was just like, told you so. <laughs> you know, and they're just like, yeah, this is what we've been waiting for for a long time. <laughs> we are dying to hear from us. Are we listening? Well, I mean, there are, you know, you need to be in places where people are asking those sorts of questions and interacting with those folks. But yeah, I mean, you know, we've got a lot of, a lot of churches that don't have the ability to respond to those questions. Yeah. I was talking to somebody yesterday in the uh, armed forces. It's good for a Christian to wear his faith on his sleeve. Yeah. I think that's what we should do. We shouldn't be hiding that, and we should uh, be very vocal. We have to be. But uh, I think our church was kind of 
we weren't like going out preaching or anything. We just did what we thought our conscience allowed us to do. And I think of Martin Luther and reason. This is an interesting thing. I don't know if anybody's really read Martin Luther, but some of his diatribe and some of his teaching was actually against reason. Now, I'm not saying he was against reason because if you read enough of Luther, you'll find he was pulling some, you know, pulling people's fingers and, and all. But I feel like this one is kind of like maybe this last part against reason also is kind of target against guys like Luther who says it's faith only, faith only, faith only. There's reasons bad. Reasons going to get you in trouble. Now he's talking about academics. Yeah, he he, he was. Reacting to the, the school. And, and but remember what he said when he was being harassed. He says, "And my conscience is held captive by the word of God." Yeah. So the thing that kept Luther going was his, his unfeigned allegiance to this idea of the word of God. And I'm gonna, if I'm going to be held captive, it's going to be by this. Well, I, you know, I got into this a little bit uh, the other night, the other night with the guys at the at the conference uh, when we. When we assume that a tradition uh, has no reasonable basis, we just are being unreasonable. But what we really ought to do is, that's not to say every tradition is worth keeping, but there are some traditions that have um, you know, perennial value. So uh, what we ought to do is think about it, apply ourselves and, and wonder what's the reason for this. So what I'm getting at is when it comes to God's word, there are people who are unacquainted with it, who come into contact with it initially and see something that doesn't strike them as reasonable, and they, they say, this is stupid, rather than say, I'm stupid. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I think that's right. But I think that to, to you know, say a person who's already predisposed to think of it as unreasonable, they come across something like turn the other cheek. You know, they say, what? It doesn't make any sense to me, you know. Yeah, that kind of thing. Other, other thoughts on that? Um, let's take a look at this next clause. We won't be able to get into it very deeply. They who upon pretense of Christian liberty do practice any sin or cherish any lust, do thereby destroy the end of Christian liberty. Isn't that a fascinating way to put it? Which is that being delivered out of the hands of our enemies, we might serve the Lord without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. So there are some people who maintain that freedom is a kind of absolute, that it doesn't have some kind of um, purpose to serve. That it's just kind of like having the television control and never settling on a, I don't, wanna, I don't want to be committed to any television show because that might mean I'm, I lose my freedom. <laughs> you get my point? You know, the freedom uh, to control the television remote uh, is intended to help you arrive at a television show that's worth watching. <laughs> but if you're just like, click, 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 you know, and never, because you're afraid of, of commitment. You're afraid of like, I'm going to lose my freedom if I decide on this. 
make a commitment. And there's a lot, a lot of guys who, who view, you know, the, uh, the whole matter of uh, the relationships with women in the same way. I don't want to, like, settle on anyone because I might miss out on, you know, that kind of thing. They just never settle uh, because it means loss of freedom. But the freedom is uh, for the purpose of serving something that's worth serving, right? Remember, remember um, Bob Dylan, Slow Train of Coming? You may serve the devil, or you may serve the Lord, but you're going to serve somebody. You remember? I, I guess no one else remembers that one. <laughs> that's, when the, that's when all the black girls came in with the chorus, serve somebody. <laughs> and basically the idea, well, you remember it. Yeah. Yeah, of course you would. You were out surfing, listening to Bob Dylan. <laughs> but, but the point is a really sound one. We, as human beings, because we're finite creatures, don't have absolute freedom in the way God does. Right? We have to choose something to serve. So you may serve the devil, or you may serve the Lord, but you're going to serve somebody. You know, this idea that you don't arrive at a point of you know, service somewhere is just simply wrong. Because when you think that you have, you actually serve who? Or whom? The devil. You're part of the devil's minions at that point. You're serving, you're serving somebody. That's, that's Bob's point. You're serving somebody. Who is it? Um, so that, but that's what we're getting at. Uh, you know, last week Elizabeth brought up that liberty is moral in character, right? It's, just, it's something that's intended to be directed toward, you know, you know it's, it's intended to be ex- an exercise of personal responsibility. You know, but that's one of the things that distinguishes the word liberty, say, from the word freedom or license. License gives the sense that there's no moral constraint, but liberty has a moral character to it, Right? So the purpose is to serve the Lord. The purpose of our Christian liberty is to serve the Lord, not ourselves. Whenever you think you're serving yourself, guess what? You're serving the devil! <laughs> right? Um, being delivered out of the hands of our enemies, that we might serve the Lord without fear. Think about it, just like the deliverance of the, of the Israelites from Egypt. What were, what were they... Um, Remember what Moses said to Pharaoh, you know, my people need to come out and worship, right, and serve me. And so you have one Lord and another Lord in a contest for the service of this people. So the Lord purchases them, redeems them from the hand of Pharaoh. And then when you, when you look at... Um, you know, Deuteronomy or Exodus, the Lord keeps con- contrasting himself. Well, when you were there, you didn't have a day off. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. But with me, you have the Sabbath, right? And these are my laws. These are the things that, you know, you need to observe if you're to be my people. You can go back to your leeks and onions, you know, and they wanted to, <laughs> You know, but at that point, you know, they are in the service of the Lord. They're not just serving themselves. So freedom had a, had a, a point of reference, and that point of reference was the lordship of God. So serve the Lord without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. 
So we're to serve the Lord all the days of our life. Any, any thoughts or comments about any of that? About Moses. What? It's hard for us to, you know, unless you really want to be a strict theonomist or a reconstructionist, to go to the, the magistrate and say, you see the word of God says this, so we got to, you got to let us do this. But in fact, that's, isn't that what Moses was doing? Oh, I think we need to do that. I think, yeah, I think there are very definitely moments where we, we, we bring up Scripture and we say, this is wrong, that God condemns this. Right? Isn't that what Moses was doing? Oh, sure. Yeah. There was a guy, Steve, you don't remember this guy, Chuck McElhaney? Remember Chuck McElhaney? Chuck McElhaney. <laughs> 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 so he knows who I'm talking about. <laughs> He was an OBC minister up in San Francisco, and he didn't—he—he he got his share of persecution for for standing up for the Lord. But he was a strong theonomist type person, which he believed just simply saying he believed that the Word of God should, you know, legislate our our conscience and what we ought to do. And he would go to the, the magistrate meetings with the Bible in hand and stand up and, and read out the text and just sit down. Now he got he got lambasted for that, but. Well, there are a lot of other people who got lambasted for doing the same thing. You know, you think about you know Athanasius, or you think about Christostom. What was it? Christostom or Athanasius was exiled like seven times. I think with Christostom, uh, the last one is when the earthquake hit. <laughs> so he's he's exiled. He's from Constantinople. There's actually a famous painting of him with the Empress, and she's sitting up in the you know, in a, in a balcony by herself, and he's just pointing at her. <laughs> Invitation to the wilderness again. <laughs> Gets out of the pulpit, let's uh, take you out, uh, out of town. <laughs> and I think the last time, I really, I can't remember if it was Athanasius or Christosom, but it was, it was an earthquake. And they said, and the city repents, and, you know, we were wrong. <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah, we need that kind of stuff, you know, and, and there need to be... Um, you know, preachers who are willing to to do that. I I told you the the story about Serge's uh, grandfather. Did I tell you that story? I don't know if I if if, I, if so. I was in South Carolina, and um, I was at the Green City Development office there. And uh, the guy who runs the that office's first name is Serge, and. His father was a, a Baptist preacher in the Soviet Union, and he had spent 14 years in the gulag. And he would just kind of get out, preach, be sent back, <laughs> just kind of over and over again. And then when, you know, the, the Iron Curtain fell and, the, and the, you know, and, and things were kind of in chaos in the early 90s and stuff like that, there, a lot of the, the Soviet officials at that point were trying to make nice with the West and demonstrate, you know, that they had changed their ways. And so they were releasing people, you know, political prisoners uh, from the gulags. But apparently, uh, Serge's grandfather really irritated the commandant so much uh, with his preaching <laughs> that he brought him into his office and said, everyone else is gone, but you stay. And when I sign this paper, you will have to stay. And Serge's grandfather said, if you sign that paper, you're going to drop dead because there's an angel standing right behind you. And the guy did it and dropped bed <laughs> right there on the spot. And so then Serge's grandfather got to go home. <laughs> but that, but the, the kind of the, the, the cool thing about it is not just that, but just the fact that Serge's grandfather just kept doing it. 
just, you know, you let me out, this is what you get. <laughs> I'm going to preach. And, and so Serge was kind of fun because he was, he was remembering the days when he was a little boy and his grandfather was so popular in his community because he was just this godly, you know, truth-telling old man. And everybody loved him so much that, that Serge was, like, jealous. That's my grandfather. You can't have him. <laughs> kind of fun story. But anyway, I know I hope I could be that kind of guy, you know, if I ever find myself in a situation like that. You don't know until you're in the moment. We all assume that we will do the right thing, right? We've got to pray that the Lord gives us the strength to do the right thing at, the, at that moment. That we don't know. Yes, yeah, right. That's right. <laughs> but are you prayed up enough to see? <laughs> but that's the thing, you know. Uh, there's, a, I think, a clearing of the eyes that you know occurs with prayer and with, uh, you know, just God's work in your life. Think about just how profoundly uh, sanctifying uh, that whole matter of being in the gulags must have been for him. Just knowing, all I need to do, it's just like the pinch of incense in Rome, all I need to do is just go along, you know, and not, not doing it. You know, that's, that's powerful. Anyway, yeah, David. Both Davids. <laughs> we'll start with you and then we'll go to... Yeah, well, there's that great line. You used that line from uh, Stonewall Jackson yesterday. I'm perfect. And he, he was. The accounts of him in battle were just unbelievable. And he's getting shot out all over the place, perfectly cool, sucking on a lemon. <laughs> you know, hey, day of my death is appointed by God. You know, David. I just want to tie together even last week's sermon, yesterday for sure, that... We really need each other yeah. to inspire each other to be that perfectly balanced Christian in the middle, but really ready in a moment's notice to preach, pray, or die yeah. because it's getting crazy. Yeah. And uh, Josh McDowell, he's still writing books. He's got one called The Beauty of Intolerance on how to deal with all the crazy tolerance. Yeah. And then uh, I'm just reminded of Martin Luther. The taxes goes ten layers deeper than anything I've read on Martin Luther. Yeah. But there was a guy who said it is not right to go against conscience. Not right or safe. Yeah. So here I stand. And he was willing to just, that would be it. But he started a reformation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we've got plenty of uh, inspiring people to think about, and many of whom uh, did the right thing and we don't know about. Something to consider. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, the opportunity to reflect on uh, this important matter, and we pray, Lord, that you'll help us to be faithful and to uh, exercise wisdom and discretion and seek you uh, for those, uh, otherwise we won't have them. In Christ's name, amen.